So uh, this morning, uh, I am joined up here by one of my sons. Uh, this is, yeah, this is our third son. You want to tell everybody your name? I'm Walker. Walker, that's right. And uh, so Walker just had a birthday. Tell him what, what you turned. Twelve. Twelve. It was like, yeah, yeah, big twelve. <laughs> Going into student ministry. You pretty excited about that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you look excited. Um, uh, <laughs> so a couple years ago, two years ago, uh, we tried a new sport as a family. The, you boys love sports. And tell us what sport you ran. Track. Ran track. We, had, we were part of a community that had rec track. So it was cool. It was like little kindergartners all the way up through sixth grade. And we found out pretty quickly that Walker was good at this, and he had a, an event that he was really good at. So tell us a little bit about your, your event that you were best at. I did 400. 400 meters, right? That's a brutal race, a brutal race. Now, we figured out you were good at it. Um, early in the season, tell me, tell me about that. Do you remember that? What happened? When we were in the four by four. Four by four race, and you were the anchor leg. We were behind. Yeah. Like by a lot, and then we, I won. You won. You won. You Walker walked him down, didn't you? Yeah. And we're like, hey, listen, he's pretty good at this. And so this is a medal. District seven, third place that he won in the district championships. I'm gonna put your medal on you to this qualified you for the state finals in the 400 meters, and we got to go do that. Yeah, do you remember what your best time was? Like 114. 114, 114, yeah. Um, I don't think I could do that right now. Uh, um, you think you could beat that right now? You think you're faster now? Yeah, you, <laughs> you, hadn't been, you hadn't been training. But, so, and there were some fast kids at State. We didn't place at State, but it was pretty cool. You had an older brother that placed uh, in softball throw at State. That was pretty cool, right? So, but you earned this. Now, over here, we've got a couple of your trophies. This is your soccer trophy from last year, and this is a t-ball trophy from, like, 2013. You were five. This is, like, four- and five-year-old rookie ball. Now, tell me about these trophies. They're participation awards. Everyone gets them. They're participation <laughs> awards. Everyone gets them. <clears throat> well, I didn't get one. You didn't play. Uh, say that again. You didn't play. I didn't play. So, okay, so at least the participation trophies, and I had a several of these that are now in the trash at, at Gigi's house, right, or somewhere. Long, long ago, they went into the, to the garbage. They are, you had to at least be on the team. So you did have to show up. You'd have to do something. But we know that this one is even different. You didn't have to show up. You had to excel to get it, right? Now, here's what I want you to know. And if you're a kid in the room or you're a kid watching at home, you're sitting there with your mom and dad, teenager, elementary kid, and, and those in the room, here's what I want you to know. This doesn't stop at rec sports. It's just that the trophies change. It's just that the trophies change. Hey, Everybody give my man, Walkman, a, a, a hand. You did a great job. Did you should set it down there. Who needs steps, right? Just jump off the stage. I'd blow out a knee if I did that. So it's not a medal as you get older. And some of you teenagers, high school students, you know this. It's scholarship, right? And our par your parents, we do a bad job. We feed into this. Because we do things like give our kids $5 if they make all A's. Right? We send this message that says you have more value if you're smarter. 
you make better grades. And then, like I said, if you're a high school kid, you know this scholarships, it's academic. You make better test scores, you get the academic scholarship. Or maybe you're a little bit better athlete, you get an athletic scholarship. Or maybe you're into arts and you get a music scholarship. There's all the kind of ways. And the trophies change when you get older to things more like degrees. Right? It's degrees, it's titles, it's the corner office. It's something else that we get, and even when you get that, it is making the most sales in a month or bringing the most profit to the company. It's, it's kind of around and around that, that we go. And then this is one we didn't even know 10 years ago, but now this is true, this, this achievement. is We wake up in the morning and we go, ooh, how many likes and shares and retweets did I get? Did it go viral? And all of a sudden, we place our value in what other people like about what we posted, what we said, what we did. So here's, here's what happens, is that often identity equals the sum of our accomplishments. Often we place our identity in what we have done in our accomplishments. And this isn't a new concept. It has been around for a while. All right, so how many of you are Enneagram people? Enneagram people? If you're watching online... Uh, would you just put in the comments, if you know what Enneagram you are, just put it is. So Enneagram's like personality test. And it, basically the Enneagram says there's nine personality types. I'm an Enneagram eight with a three wing. Do I have any other eights in here? Okay, any threes, anybody know? You're, threes are achievers and producers. And sometimes I feel that way. You see, I thought all the free weekends during this pandemic and quarantine were a productivity contest. I did. Anybody else feel that way? We had a church member that put something on Facebook that said, what home projects did you do during quarantine? And I answered all of them. <laughs> all, all of them. I just did all of them. My wife, Emily, she can tell you this. She has to remind me. She has to say things to me like, you know, you can relax. You, can't, you can just choose to relax because this achiever-producer thing is in me. We all struggle with this already. Maybe for you, it's climbing the ladder in your career. Maybe if you're a parent, it's achieving as a parent, and you put your identity in what you accomplish in who you raise in what your children succeed in or who they are and who they become as adults. Maybe it's financial and it's all about how much money. If you're a kid, as I mentioned before, maybe it's how you uh, get awards or make the team in sports or maybe if you get first chair violin or first trumpet in the band or maybe it's if you make all A's or if you get valedictorian. And th So this was already a part of our culture. And then it got compounded. Because all of a sudden, about three and a half months ago, we said that, well, it's not just even about achieving. You are essential because of what you do. You're essential. Def you got a def new definition based on your accomplishments, your skills, your talents. I, I began to think about how many high school students and college students are going to change their career path based on this pandemic because they want to be seen as essential in case there's another one. I mean, I just thought about even this, this pandemic, how we redefined careers and identities. 
We all want to feel essential in this great big universe. If you're sitting there at home watching, you want to feel essential. If you're sitting in this auditorium watching, you want to feel essential. But this wasn't caused by quarantine. It wasn't caused because of what we've gone through. This has been a part of our identity crisis for a long, long time. It's, it's, the last few months have laid, raised a lot of questions because of this word, but it was something we were already struggling with. So let me say something about what this is not about, what today is not about, and what this series is not about. This is not pandemical. Now, you don't think that's a word, but it is. I looked it up. <clears throat> it's not pandemical. I'm not saying that this is really about the pandemic. I stayed home for months. Our staff stayed home. We Zoom called. We did what we felt that we were called to do, asked to do by our, uh, by our governor, by our county officials. So this is really not about the pandemic. This is really not about uh, which workforces should have stayed home and which shouldn't have stayed home. Uh, it's really... It's really more about the word. I wish we'd have just used a better word, like crisis protocol. Wouldn't that have been better? Like, hey, this is our crisis protocol. This group, you, you got to stay home. This group's got to work, and we'll work together. That would have felt better than you're essential, you're not. It was the word. But it has nothing to do with the pandemic and the real health crisis that we all went through, that our health officials needed us to help work with them. It's also not political. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but all, now the word essential is a political word because we can turn a bowl of ice cream into something political. <laughs> right? I mean, we can turn anything. So now this is political. So this is not about what should open up and what shouldn't open up and when they should open and how they should open. I'm not smart enough to know all that, figure that out. It's not that. And it's not professional. It's not, prof it's not about profession. I am not saying that you might not need to get a degree to get to the kind of career that you feel God is calling you to. I'm not telling you that you don't need to get some skills to, be to become who God's calling you to be. I'm not telling you when you hire, you shouldn't look for those skills. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't try to achieve and be your best. That's a biblical value to do whatever your hand finds to do with all your might. So what, what today is, I'm not telling you, is not pandemical. It's not a, a statement on the pandemic. It's not a statement on politics. It's not a statement on our, our professional lives. It is 100% personal. It is personal. Because seeing your essentialness and your identity in what you do is a losing game. It's a losing game. I think that got challenged in recent weeks when what we do got taken away. Just like that. I mean, it did for me. So here's what I do. Let me give you an example. This is more closely like what I do. I speak to rooms full of people and afterwards, I shake hands and hug necks, and I hear people's stories through the week, and almost every single Sunday, I stop in that atrium with someone who tells me a story about what's going on in their life, and I pray with them. That's what I do. I love it. I love what I get to do. And all of a sudden, on Sunday, March 15th, what I do changed. All of a sudden, I spoke into a camera, not to a room with people. 
And after service, there were no hands to shake, and there were no necks to hug, and there were no stories to hear, and there was no one to pray with in the atrium because there was no one in the atrium. And I had to begin to ask myself, who in the world am I? Because my, what I found out is that my identity was really wrapped up in what I did every Sunday. And I'm a people person, and I get energy from people. And man, I, for nine weeks, I had to get energy from that red light. Man, that red light, that's my friend right there. That red light. You're on, some of you are on the other side of that red light. And man, I love, I love connecting with you there. And so we have all had to kind of ask ourselves what, what we do. The crisis revealed something that we knew all along. Identity in what you have done is never enough. Identity in what you have done is just never enough because what you do can get taken away. I mean, I would have never dreamed that what I did would have got taken away just like that and everything that I do would change. What you do can get taken away and somebody has always done more. Somebody has better grades. Walker, we found out at State, somebody's a little faster, right? <laughs> One of the fastest guys in the district, but there are some faster guys at State. Somebody has made more sales, and somebody has a more necessary job to the health of the public during a pandemic than maybe I do or you do. Your worth being determined by your accomplishments, by your career, by your achievements is a dead-end street because tomorrow morning you will have to get up and do it all over again. And brothers and sisters, isn't that exhausting? Isn't it exhausting to try to prove yourself? The Apostle Peter who was Jesus' really right-hand man. He wasn't just a disciple. He was one of his closest confidants. Wrote to a diverse group of believers about a better way to find their identity. And I believe understanding this is the key to unlocking a life of gratitude that is rooted in the mercy and grace of Jesus. In the very first verse of 1 Peter, that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be in 1 Peter 2, but in 1 Peter 1.1, it says that these believers have been scattered all over the region. So this letter was really written to recenter them, to help them re-understand their identity, and I believe that it can recenter us as well. So if you're looking at home and you're studying along, it's in 1 Peter 2. If you got your phone app open or you got your Bibles or here, if you got your phone app or you brought your Bibles. 1 Peter 2, and we're going to start in verse 4. It says this, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, you also, you, and you, in your living room, in your bedroom, on your back porch, you. And you in the upper deck. And you right over here, you. You also, like living stones, just like him, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This word living is a part of Peter's uh, kind of vocabulary. 
that he introduces. We sang that song this morning, Living Hope. It's Peter that introduces that term. It's Peter that says uh, that he is, Christ is our living hope. Peter's the one that often repeatedly calls God the living God. And here he says the living stone. And this is in direct contrast to the gods of the ancient world, which were simply idols made of stone and wood. And the writer of Deuteronomy said, these gods made of stone and wood who cannot hear and cannot smell. There are really no gods at all. And Peter says, he takes that vocabulary of the culture and says, no, 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 no. This God Jesus is different, that he has resurrected, he has defeated sin and death, and he is the living stone. And when you believe in him, when you trust in him, that same life is transferred to you and to me and to you and to you. And we become living stones ourselves. This metaphor could not be more plain. Because there's nothing dumber than a rock. Right? It is useless. It is inanimate. It's good for nothing but a paperweight and a doorstop. And what Peter is saying is that before you came to Christ, before you were in Jesus, you were useless and inanimate. In fact, in chapter 1, he says this. He said that he, he describes it as the empty way of life handed to you down from your ancestors. That your accomplishments are useless. That your accolades don't count in heaven. That your achievements don't matter because they are not what life is all about. That your identity and what you have done and what you can accomplish is not. That no, now in Christ, here's what I want you to know. You were used to be useless and inanimate, but now you are a living stone. And we used to use stones, Peter seems to say. We used to use stones to build temples that rise to glory and get torn down in wars. But God isn't building a house like that anymore. You are a living stone. In fact, you are one of the priests in the new temple, and God is building a spiritual house. And you are the priest. And everything you do is a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Everything you do. You were once a rock, but now you are a living stone. So now, in Christ, not just every job is essential. In Jesus, every moment, every action, every movement in the life of a Christian is an offering to God. So here's one question I want to ask you. What can you reimagine as an offering of spiritual sacrifice? This is a really important question. Parents. <clears throat> Approximately, how many peanut butter and jelly sandwiches have you made in the last three months? How much more has your dishwasher run in the last three months? How much more laundry have you done in the last three months? Or how, how much have you... There have been things... 
And it can be monotonous. But here's what I want you to do. Mom and daddies, listen to me. Mom and daddies on the other side of the screen, here's what I want you to know is that when you make that peanut butter and jelly sandwich because you are in Jesus, it is an offering of spiritual sacrifice because you are a living stone that is a part of a spiritual house. You are a priest, and God has entrusted these little ones to you. So doggone it, you make that PB&J to the glory of God because it matters. Because in the life of a follower of Jesus, everything matters. Every monotonous duty at work, every monotonous chore around the house, kids, every bit of homework, teenagers, every report you feel is useless at your office, everything you do is an offering of spiritual sacrifice to God. It's all essential when it's done in Jesus' name. And no one can define you otherwise. Then, Peter goes on. And he says this. For in the scripture, so then he starts quoting Isaiah and the Psalms. For in the scripture, it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, so if you believe this stone, this living stone of Jesus, see it's capitalized. We're we're the little little S stones. Jesus is the big S stone. You see that? You notice the difference? This stone is precious. Jesus is precious, he's saying. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. In other words, in other words, if you don't believe and you put your trust in your trophies and you put your hope in your accomplishments and and you put your, your hope in your merit and your goodness then one day you will get exactly what you asked for. And one day you will stand toe-to-toe and face-to-face with the living stone, with the cornerstone, and your life, your accomplishments, your merit will be measured against his, and he will be a stumbling block for you. You will not get over his perfection. And that's what you're destined for. And now instead, though, of looking at Jesus and going, oh, but I could never measure up. You see, those who believe, those who put their trust, because you can imagine, I would stand in the face of Jesus and, like, be ashamed. What about you? But then he says, those who trust in Jesus will never be put to shame. And for them, this living stone is not a stumbling block. He is precious, Because we realize that it is through his mercy and grace is that the only way that we are received into him. So I don't trust in my accomplishments, my morality, my accolades. Those who put their trust in him who are willing to say, I lay my trophies down. I lay myself down. I believe. And then Peter tells them how essential they are. And listen closely. But you are a chosen people. I mean, he's kind of 
I, I know I told you before, sort of, that you were dumb as a rock. Now you're living stones, though. I want you to know how broken, messed up, useless, inadequate you were. But now because you believe, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once, you were not even a people. You were nothing. But now, but now, you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now, say it with me, but now, but now you have received mercy you are chosen you are royal you are holy you are special and you are a people now you belong now and I just believe that we cannot understand the fullness of God's mercy and still until we real understand the reality of how messed up and broken we are without it but I don't think we can look at this passage without thinking about something that we need to think about and talking about something that we need to talk about. And I chose uh, this passage. I felt the Lord laid on my heart months ago. I felt this series God was calling us to do when, when this thing started clearing up, when people were back in the building a little bit. But it had new language for me this week. Because for too long in our country, the narrative has been this. That you're chosen if you're white. And you might be a little more royal if you're white. And maybe you're a little more holy if you're white. And maybe a little more special if you're white and Lord knows you've received more mercy if you're white the death of George Floyd has rocked our world and you've seen the video You've wept, you've prayed, <clears throat> and it's reminded us that we got a long way to go. I want to remind you something. This isn't political, it's personal. My oldest son is sitting right here, right in the middle. He'll be 16 this week. Can you believe that? And pretty soon he'll be getting his license. He's a pretty good driver. Pretty good driver. Um, we got to work on the details, you know, the parking. Um, <clears throat> and I don't know that he, he won't get his license this week, but hopefully soon. And, I'm, and soon, hopefully, we, Emily and I will have the courage to allow him to pull out of that driveway by himself. And I have zero fear 
that when he does, my 16-year-old son will ever be pulled over for no reason. And if he does get pulled over because he's speeding, better not speed, or has a broken taillight, and he gets a little mouthy with the cop because he can get a little mouthy, he gets it honest. I have zero fear that his life will be in danger. But African-American mothers and fathers with 16-year-old sons feel much differently. And it has to stop. One of my best friends is also in law enforcement. He's running for sheriff where he lives. And we got some incredible policemen that that work here at our church from Vestavia Hills Police Department every Sunday morning. And I think good people like them want it to stop too. And a starting point is for us to get real about race in church. Now this may come as a surprise to you, but I'm white. Like I can't get around it. I am white. But what I want you to know is that one of the reasons Emily and I felt called to mountaintop is because we want to lead a multicultural church with a congregation that looks like the streets of heaven. And we want to raise our boys in a church family with people of all colors. That's a part of what we want to do. But I'm white. And I can't, what I know, and this is what white people have to start understanding, and let me just say what it is, that most of us sitting in this room are white. This is what we have to start understanding, is that sometimes our experience as white people in a world that has seen white people as more chosen, royal, holy, and special makes us blind to the real struggles that our African-American brothers and sisters have been going through. And, and we don't even know how to help. I want to help. So I want to listen first. To my African-American brothers and sisters, that's what I want to tell you. I want to listen first. This fall, I'm going to be teaching a series called The Elephants and Donkeys in the Room. That's going to be a fun one, right? How to shrink your church in three easy weeks, right? <clears throat> um, and we're going to talk about politics. We're coming up on an election. Does anybody know that? Did you all know that? But we're going to talk about race in that series and a few other hot topics that sometimes get our, our, our emotions high. But we believe that the Scripture has something to say about it. We believe the Scripture has something to teach us on it but that's happening in the fall but the conversation starts now and I believe this I believe this that our church is called to such a time as this in this city that I believe God has called us at mountaintop to be a light in Birmingham and an example for Birmingham and we cannot and we will not, on my watch, be a church that is for Birmingham unless we are for people of all colors in Birmingham. 
What a better place to do it than Birmingham, Alabama. And I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced of this. That a tweet or a Facebook post ain't enough. And it ain't going to change the world. And I want to be a part of our church changing the world because we are in the gospel business. And Jesus came to defeat the powers of darkness, sin, and death so that the world would change. And we're going to be a part of the gospel work. So here's some things that we're doing. Uh, I've asked Glenn Denton and Jenna Kirkendall to help begin to put together some conversations with some of our African-American leaders in our church. Uh, and in our in our family and help me understand and help our leaders understand who are white how we can help be a part of racial reconciliation justice uh, and healing in our city and we want to begin building partnerships with other churches with uh, predominantly african-american churches with churches um, from uh, all ethnicities, we want to start building partnerships with law enforcement divisions all across our city because, I, listen, I did not get into this to spend an hour writing a post so I could get a bunch of likes and everybody say, thank you, pastor. I got into this to be a part of change, okay? So let's do the hard work, all right? White people, this, gonna, this is going to have to help. This, you're going to have to ha have some hard work of listening because we've had a voice for 400 years. Our African-American brothers and sisters, we need you to be honest with us and, and give us some grace as we develop, as the scriptures say, ears to hear. All right? So that we can be in this together. We had a video at the beginning. We're better together. We're better together. I think the conversation for white people starts right here. You are a chosen people. We have to understand that it is a part of a sinful and broken world that has told us that we are more chosen, more royal, more holy, more special because of the color of our skin. What we have to remember, what we need to remember is a message that is for every one of us. We were all inanimate and useless rocks, no, no matter the pigment of our skin, before we came to Jesus. And that it is only through Christ that we are chosen, royal, holy, and special. And this is the good news for every single one of us. This is good news. No matter what color your skin, if you're listening at home, no matter what ethnicity or what country you were born in, the good news, if you have ever felt inadequate, if you have ever felt that you don't measure up, the good news is this is all our biography right here. A dead rock. But in Jesus Christ, you are made a living stone. You are royal, holy, special. You are called. You now have mercy, and you are a people because of the power of God in Jesus Christ. That's what you are now. I am made in, this is what I want everybody to know. I am made in God, God's image, but sin has distorted that image, and I am nothing with this without Christ. We're nothing, not a people. Our good deeds, our accolades, our accomplishments cannot measure up to one ounce of mercy deserved. But the cornerstone, the living stone, laid down a foundation of grace and forgiveness and mercy for all who would do one simple thing. 
You know what it is? Belief. That's it. And if you would just say, I'm not going to put my trust in anything I've done. I'm going to put all my trust in the living stone of Jesus. All of a sudden, you are chosen. Look at me. You are royal. You are holy. You are special. And dare I say, essential. This is a losing game. To put your identity in what you have done, it's never enough. It'll never measure up. There will always be somebody who has done more. There's always be someone who has accomplished more. And here's the deal. No matter what you accomplish, it doesn't change anything about God. I was really proud of Walker for making those state finals. But I love all my boys the same. And it didn't change the way I thought about Walker. It didn't change the way I thought about Morgan, Tanner, and Brooks. And you can't change the way God has already decided he thinks about you. Identity and what God has done is always enough. You are not essential because of what you do and you are not special because of what you have done. You are special and holy and chosen and royal because of what Christ has already done on the cross. And when Jesus breathed his last breath, he looked up to the heavens and he said, it is finished. And you cannot change how much God already loves you you can only choose to whether or not you are going to believe or not to believe but church I want you to cling to it I want you to embrace it and tomorrow morning those of you at home and those in this room and maybe you've never made this decision before but you could just make this decision tomorrow would you just wake up tomorrow morning and maybe tonight before you go to bed and when you brush your teeth and just look in that mirror and say I am nothing without Christ. But because of his grace and mercy and forgiveness, I'm a people now. And I am staring into the mirror at someone who is chosen and holy and royal and special. And I am so essential that God sent his son to die just for me. And brothers and sisters, that will always be enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh God, we, um, we put, our, we put our, uh, our hope in you. We put our trust in you. And to do that, Lord, we have to confess that that's not the way it's always been. Lord, sometimes we have to look back on the ways that we have lived and the ways that we've tried to measure up, and we realize now it's just such a losing game, God. And we're so tired, we're exhausted of running that race. And God, our world is so broken and we want to be a place of hope and change in this church, but we know that our hearts need to change first. And God, could we just lay down ourselves before you? 
I lay down, Lord, the, the sinfulness of our world that I've benefited from that's causing others hurt and harm right now. And I lay down everything I think I know so that I can listen to my brothers and sisters whose skin is a different color than mine. And Lord, I lay down my achievements, accomplishments. We lay down our accolades. We lay down everything, every single person in this room. We want you. Christ alone. Cornerstone. Oh, Jesus. You are precious to us. Amen.